begin our time with prayer. I am going to be shorter today because we got kids uh, and, and, uh, and service tonight, and so I know you all excited to get out of here. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, and we, we just thank you that, uh, Lord, Lord, a light has shone in the darkness. Uh, we are no longer um, trapped in darkness, Lord, but we, we've seen the light. Uh, you've called us into that light and I pray, Lord, this morning as we remind ourselves that we, in fact, do have the best story ever told, uh, that we would uh, be okay with not embellishing it, uh, but rather just entering into the fullness of what a wonderful story it is. And we need your help to do this. Uh, we pray for the Spirit to help and lead and guide and direct us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. As you're turning there. Um, let me remind you that the, the, the aim of our sermon series over the last few weeks, and then this week included, uh, is, is for us to see and savor and rejoice in and be blown away by the good news of the gift of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In, in the flesh. Uh, so week one, we looked at the word becoming flesh. Week two, we looked at the, of the idea that, uh, that that incarnation is the ground for all gift giving uh, in the Christmas season. Uh, last week we looked at the earthiness of uh, what it means that Jesus became a man and what that, the implication is then for us. Uh, and this week what I want to do is I want to look back at the Old Testament to one of the most well-known Christmas prophecies of the entire Bible. Um, for someone who's been a Christian for a long time, you may feel that this passage uh, is something you've heard before. This is old hat. And, and if, if it is, then, then praise God. Praise God. Uh, I don't think uh, I have anything new to say this morning. But on the contrary, what I want to remind us is of something uh, very old, very, very old. And the aim of our time this morning is to, for a moment, zoom out of our own story. So the, the, the entire uh, last few weeks have been uh, to zoom into our story and the fact that the incarnation actually has ramifications and implications uh, uh, for our lives. Uh, but what I want to do this week is actually zoom out of your life uh, for a moment. I know it might be hard for some of us but to see the cosmic story of the universe that is being told and understand that the Christmas story is the best story of all. The best story of all. I've mentioned a few times over the last few weeks uh, uh, about how to read or watch or comprehend movies and stories, life in general. And I've been thinking that part of the reason for that is our own, Julie and I decided to home, start homeschooling our kiddos about a year and a half ago. We've been on this journey for about a year and a half, trying to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And one of the things that this journey has caused us to do is beginning to zoom out and look at the root of modern education. Look at the root of modern ed- education. Um, because in this, like, one of the, one of the great... Um, Tragedies, I would say, is that we just merely copy and paste everything in our life. You know what I mean by that? Uh, we merely just do what's been done before without truly examining the, the roots of it, the fruit of it, uh, and understand whether or not it actually lines up with Scripture. So one of the things that we've been trying to do is analyze uh, how do we think about children's education, right? How do children most naturally learn? What are they most designed for? Like, what is most conducive to, to, to education for kids, and one of the things that we've discovered is that modern education uh, assumes that if you can recite enough facts, then you're educated. Think about it. 
From grade school on, it's merely fact stacking and regurgitation of facts that you've memorized. Um, I know Nick's in the house. Nick's an education teacher. He's looking, he was looking at his phone, now he's looking at me. Um, <laughs> Nick's an education teacher, but, but even especially in, in light of history, right? Like one of the ways, and I know he, he works hard against that, right? But he would also say that one of the uh, overarching bends of education uh, for history is merely being able to repeat when something actually happened. Right? And so we, if, we, if we stack enough books, if we stack enough knowledge, then we say, congratulations, you're graduated and you're educated. But we have to begin with the question, is that what education means? If you merely know enough information, can you say that you're educated? Right? This type of understanding, this type of defining education didn't come out of nowhere, by the way. It came out of the Enlightenment movement. Now, now, stay with me for a minute, minute here because this is important, right? The Enlightenment movement had as it, at its aim to do what? Does anybody know the whole Enlightenment project? 1700s, you guys know what that? So the, 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 the aim of the Enlightenment movement was to do away with needing to rely on God to explain the observable world. The underlying premise and idea of the Enlightenment movement was to explain the world through facts of observation untethered religious, moral understanding. And because they thought that they could explain the world in reasonable and scientific terms, then things like supernatural and miracles were relegated to the area of child's play. Things like angels, things like a virgin birth, things like cosmic forces of good and cosmic forces of evil have no place in a sophisticated world for enlightened adults. Those who can see and supposedly understand the world realize this to be true, and so they unshackle themselves, if you will, from everything supernatural, defining everything in naturalistic terms. Now, you might be wondering this morning, what in the world does this have to do with an introduction to a Christmas Eve sermon? Let me give you three reasons this is important, uh, actually understanding some of this groundwork here. The three reasons. The first is it's important because this is the air we breathe. This is the air we, we breathe. Um, uh, all of us have been educated in the, the air of the Enlightenment, right? This is the elevated music that is in constant repeat in the back of our minds that we've forgotten it's there. And because of this, because this is the way all of us uh, 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 see and understand the world, if we haven't been trained to spot it, notice it, and reject it, we will read the world, and, and worse off, we will read the Word of God wrongly. Furthermore, this is important because it makes us unable to actually read stories. If we've been trained to merely acquire and stack facts, then we have missed the training in reading stories and coming to conclusions, right? I mentioned this a few weeks ago around who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, what's really right and what's really wrong because uh, stacking facts has nothing to say about whether who was right and who was wrong. Finally, this is important. Um, because even though it does away with supernatural reading of the world, it puts things uh, of that nature in a children's book only, uh, it does not do away with the supernatural bent of our own hearts. This disconnect between how we are told to think about the world and how our hearts are wired to experience the world leads to all manners of crazy ideas, crazy things. Things like thinking that crystals can redirect and rechannel energy flow with their unique energetic vibrations helping to unblock areas of the body or energy that have become stuck. This is absolutely ridiculous. Well, we, of course it is. 
But when a world has been wired and programmed to see the world as unsupernatural, and yet their very hearts long for the supernatural, well, they come up with crazy things. But even worse off, this plays out by taking stories, stories from the scriptures, and trying to recast them as children's stories, supposedly filled with wonder and magic, because the story that it's telling is thought not to be magical enough. And we do this no more clearly and no more blatantly than we do with the Christmas story. Years ago, uh, Julie and I first encountered a family that did not do the whole Santa thing. You know what I mean? I, I, we got kids in the room. I'm not sure where everyone stands here. Uh, and I thought, that's interesting. But over the last seven years, uh, it's become more and more clear to me that the reason we fill our kids' heads with Christmas stories about a jolly old fat guy who flies around on magical reindeer is because we think that the Christmas story is not magical enough. And this, my friends, could not be further from the truth. So let's go to Isaiah 9 and let's see the Christmas story as the best story of all time. Look with me at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. Now, let's pause for a moment because maybe it's been a while since you've taken a swim through the waters of Isaiah. So let me just, let me just break this entire book down for you. Uh, the book of Isaiah uh, is this prophetic declaration uh, um, uh, over, right? It's, it's talking about things that will happen, uh, the ramifications of it, things that won't happen if, if certain things don't happen, right? You see what I'm saying? Uh, Isaiah is a prophetic book, and it has, as its aim, three main parts. So... I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah can be broken into three sections. The first runs from chapters 1 to 39. Uh, and in this, Isaiah, uh, the, the message uh, of judgment and warning is coming to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. You see, Isaiah addresses issues such as injustice, idolatry, disobedience to God's law. This overall theme is a call to repentance and a plea for the people of God to turn back to God. Isaiah also speaks about the consequences of disobedience. And, and where does Isaiah get this type of understanding of reading and seeing the world? Is it not from the Torah, from the first five books of the Old Testament? And in particular, the book of Deuteronomy, which clearly states for God's people, if they disobey his commands, here's all the bad things that are going to happen. And he sees the fact that God's people are disobeying God's law, and he is reminding them of the types of judgment and the types of curses that will follow disobedience. And then there's a couple places throughout Isaiah, this being one of them, chapter 9, that offer hope in the form of future restoration. The second part of Isaiah runs from chapters 40 to 55. The second section of Isaiah is written from within the perspective of captivity uh, for the Israelites. It's characterized by messages of comfort, hope, 
redemption. This section speaks about the eventual return of the exiles out of captivity to the homeland and the coming of the servant of the Lord who would bring salvation. Finally, the last uh, part of the, of the book, chapters 56 through 66, uh, focuses on post-exile world and the challenges faced by the return of the exiles as they sought to rebuild and restore the community. It addresses, addresses issues of faithfulness, worship, justice. There's also these messianic and eschatological elements, right? This, this idea that, that Isaiah is seeing uh, eventually someone will come and make this all right. And so Isaiah 9, within this context, then falls within the first section of the book of Isaiah. This is all legwork and groundwork so we can actually understand what in the world Isaiah is talking about here, right? Isaiah chapter 9 finds itself in the midst of a message of judgment that will come because of the disobedience of the children of Israel. In the surrounding chapters, Isaiah condemns the disobedience of the people, warns of the consequences they will face. However, chapter 9 serves as a message and a glimpse of hope, a vision of a future deliverer. And so I want us to see this morning four movements in the best story of all time, and then and then we'll go home. Number one, a, a land of great darkness. That's part number one. Part two, a promise of great hope. Number three, a son of great peace. And number four, a king of great righteousness. So look at with me at verse one as we look at a land of great darkness. He says, but there will be no gloom. Now Isaiah is continuing on a, a thought from the previous verse. So let's, let's rewind and, and look at Isaiah chapter eight, verse 22. He says this, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, right? This is judgment 101. Isaiah is saying, like, this is coming, and it's perhaps already here. Notice the language that he uses in that verse, distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. He says thick darkness there in verse, the end of verse 22. This has really been the story of all of human history, has it not? Ever since the fall of the garden, this has been the story of history. That you and I find ourselves in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sin, in the midst of, of great pain. Not only sin that we do ourselves, but oftentimes, don't we just struggle under the weight of other people's sins? Right, throughout the Gospel of John, there's this recurring theme of the contrast between light and darkness. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Uh, in the Gospel of John, light symbolizes goodness, truth, presence of God, while darkness represents sin, ignorance, and separation from God. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this. This is the judgment. This is Jesus talking. He says, The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. What, what Jesus is saying is that the entire world outside of Christ is not in this neutral space. It's not that the, everyone's in a, a maybe good, maybe bad. He said, no, no, the whole thing has been shoved and thrown into thick darkness. And the Bible's overwhelming reality, picture that it points to in order to symbolize judgment is always darkness. Have you ever been in one of those caves? Um, uh, uh, about a year or so ago, a year and a half, uh, we took our kids to uh, Ohio Caverns. You all been there? Uh, right over, over in West Liberty. And we remember uh, at one point down in the caves, 
uh, they, they, get, they, 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 they let you know they're going to turn all the lights off so the kids don't scream. Um, and the whole point is that you're thrown into utter darkness. Have you ever been in those situations? Uh, utter darkness where, like, you can't even see the nose on your face. There's something about those sorts of environments, those sorts of situations that deep, uh, instinctive within our souls, something is hardwired into our very nature that causes us in those circumstances to become undone. Like if you sit there long enough, if you are, are forced to be in a place of darkness long enough, you begin to just lose your mind. Or you become undone. And this is because even instinctively, as image bearers of God, we know that darkness represents evil, don't we? Darkness always represents evil, right? This is why most crimes happen when? At night, under the cover of darkness, right? Even, take, take even Hollywood, right? Hollywood understands this di- dichotomy between light and dark. Uh, you guys remember uh, Star Wars? Anybody ever heard watch that? A couple of you? Okay. Uh, remember the, the original three? Um, Luke Skywalker comes on the scene. What collar does he wear? Is it not beige? Is it not a lighter collar? What's, what's Darth Vader wear? Is he not dressed in all black, right? Even Hollywood gets the underlying sense of human nature that light is good and darkness uh, and black and, and darkness is, is evil, right? Even they get, right? And you actually see this progress in the, in the movie if you watch the trilogy, uh, the original trilogy. At what point does uh, Luke Skywalker change his clothes, right? Because doesn't he eventually move from being donned in light-colored clothing to what? Black collar clothing, dark collar covering, right? This is as he begins to um, dabble in the, the evil spirits, right? The, 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 the dark side of the force, right? He begins to change his, his clothing to represent, uh, that, that becomes a, a picture, a visual picture of what we can see is the internal reality that's going on in his heart. Now, they, they, if, if, you're, if you pay close attention in the movie, um, what, what, what are the rest of the bad guys dressed in? The stormtroopers? Some of you are like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. You should. It was like in the 70s, which is right up there with you guys. Um, the <laughs> we'll take that one out of the recording. Um, right, right. The, the stormtroopers are dressed in what? White. Right. This is, uh, even my kids, when we were watching these movies not too long ago, they're like, well, those are the good guys, right? They're, they're dressed in white. Like, even they instinctively know. Right, and of course, like that, that plays into the larger arc of the stormtroopers. And the, anyways, we'll move on. Some of you here today might not realize that outside of Christ, you are thrust into deep darkness. The whole world is thrust into deep darkness, gloom, despair. But according to Jesus, the reason we don't come to the light is not because we're unaware. The reason we don't come to the light is because we actually love the darkness. We love our sin. And this land of great darkness is the setting, for the, uh, of the setting of the stage for the best story of all time. It's the information that you need to know in order to appreciate the greatness of the story about to be told. You see, the stars in the night sky shine brightest when? Is it not when the night is at its darkest? And that's exactly when the promise of great hope is given here. Look at, look at, look at Isaiah 9, chapter, one, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, we begin to see this promise of great hope. He says, but... But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see, the end of chapter 8 mentions gloom, distress, darkness, anguish. 
But notice how the promise now, this, this seed of hope begins to be planted. This promise of great hope is a promise of a reversal out of darkness. You see, in verse 1, Isaiah points, uh, his, his point is that there will come a day when there will no longer be any gloom. No longer be any darkness. There will be a day when, um, uh, when, when gloom becomes glory. And do you see how Isaiah is categorizing the time aspect of this? He, he uses these vague terms there in verse 1. He says, uh, in the former time, right? In the former time there was, there was gloom and anguish, but in the latter time there will be glory, right? His, his point is like he doesn't know exactly when this is going to happen. But he wants to ground his readers in that this is a promise from the Lord that this will happen. So he goes on in verse 2. Look at it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day here he's prophesying that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. He says, uh, in, in the former days, gloom. In the, in the latter days, uh, glory. And he said that like, no longer will they be in anguish, but they'll be in light. And, and notice here in verse 3, he, he begins to list off the aspects of the promise. Uh, but Isaiah never says, who's the one to do these promises? Look at verse 3. He says, you will multiply the nations. You have increased its joy. In verse 4, he says, you have broken the rod, the staff, and the yoke. So who is Isaiah talking about here? He's obviously, Isaiah is referring to the Lord who will do all these things. The Lord in the latter time will do these things. In other words, Isaiah is saying that at some point in the future, the Lord's going to show up in a brilliant light. Nations will be multiplied. Joy will be increased. Oppressors and burdens will be done away with. Can you see that in this story, after we've gotten our bearings in the darkness, we get this promise of great hope? Now think with me just for a minute of your, of your own lived experience in life. Don't you want this story to be true? I think of every evil, every sin that you've endured, every, every trial you've uh, walked through, every burden you've lifted. Doesn't your heart long for this kind of reality to come about? Doesn't it long for oppression to cease and for burdens to be lifted? Well, this is, what, this is what a good story is. This is what a good story looks like. You see, this type of magical hope is not false, but it's actually real. It's real hope. Friends, Christmas is the fulfillment. The incarnation is the fulfillment of this very promise. You see, for in the Gospel of Matthew, he picks up these very verses, and he says this in chapter 4, verse 12. Now he, Jesus... When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went up, and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that, listen, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus, what Matthew's doing there, by quoting and pulling Isaiah chapter 9 and putting it into Matthew chapter 4, he said, Yeah, yeah, Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus fulfilled that. And listen, we live on that side of the story. Jesus as is the fulfillment of that great hope. But notice Isaiah isn't done yet. 
He doesn't hang this promise on thin air. He, it's not like he just says it and then walks away and says, yeah, it's a good idea. It's, it's wishful thinking. Look at the first word of verse 6. The first word of verse 6 is what? For. That for there means because or, or um, uh, in order that, right? Like this is the ground, if you will, of, of Isaiah's promise. How can Isaiah promise that, that this great hope, this great restoration, this great uh, light being shown on the darkness of men, how can, he, how can he do that? He says, well, because, or four in verse six, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the promise of great hope is anchored in the reality that a son of great peace will come. He says all of this is going to be reversed. We're going to be thrown out of darkness uh, and into light, right? The light will come. Uh, wrongs will be made right. Everything will be put back in order because we have been given a child, because we have been given a son. And, and Isaiah is intentional here, right? His word choices, the ordering of his words, it's all intentional here, right? He says a child is born, a son is given. Remember the promise in the garden that God had given the snake, uh, given to the snake, right? This this promise, the, the first mention of the gospel. What do he say in, John, in Genesis 3.15? He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Isaiah is very intentional here. Don't miss this. The promise of the gospel in Genesis is that a woman would have an offspring, right? That's what, he, that's what the whole language around uh, between your offspring and her offspring, right? The promise here is that, that an offspring will come. It isn't that Isaiah's first point. He says a child is born. But the promise is clarified further when, uh, when uh, God promised that it would, it, would, it would not just be a child, but it, in fact it would be a man. For he says in the second line, he shall crush your head. Listen, listen, uh, correct pronouns matter. They matter. This, this corresponds to Isaiah's second line. He said, a son is given. You see, Isaiah doesn't see himself as like disconnected from the grand story the universe is telling. He doesn't see himself disconnected from the Christmas story. Instead, by, by, by utterance that it was given to him by God, he, he was able to see and discern that he knew he was talking about. He, Jesus, uh, 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 Isaiah didn't know the name Jesus, but he knew about whom he was talking about here. Right, First I, I, uh, Peter chapter 1, he, he, he helps us out here because Peter uh, wants to address the issue of like the, 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 the guys who wrote in the Old Testament. Uh, what, how did they think about what they were writing? This is what he says in First uh, Peter 1. He said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. What, what Peter is saying is that as Isaiah is writing these words, right? For unto us a son, uh, a child is born, a son is uh, given, right? What he's saying is that like Isaiah didn't have it all figured out, but he believed them to be true. Like, he, he tried to search the words that he was writing to understand the times and the person uh, that, that Christ would show up. In verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, he says, uh, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. 
So, so, so Isaiah is given this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, not necessarily just for himself, according to Peter in, in chapter 1, but rather he was given this for the people who would come after him. In other words, what Peter is saying is that Isaiah chapter 9 is for you. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's saying that like Isaiah didn't know the name Jesus, but he knew about whom he was writing about. Look what he calls him in, in verse, uh, verse 6 here. He's, he calls him wonderful counselor. Uh, this, is, this is how he describes the, the, the king who would reign. Uh, this is the idea that he would be a wise king. Uh, anybody know any un- unwise politicians? Notice next he calls him mighty God. Uh, the, the implication here being that he would be someone who is strong, not weak. He's mighty. He calls him everlasting father, the idea uh, of a father who cares for his children. This would be the one who would care for those around him. He also calls him Prince of Peace, right? This idea that the perfect shalom of the garden would be restored. This son is the main character of the story, and Isaiah realizes that. And he writes it into his prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9. You see, the Old Testament writers and characters understood that they were talking about things that they wished they could fully understand. What's the implication for us then? What's the implication for us? Listen, how blessed are we? Because we get to look into things and understand things that the angels and the Old Testament writers could not understand. How blessed are we to live on this side of Christmas? And doesn't this highlight the hypocrisy of our own hearts when we try to add extra nonsense of Christmas time? Listen, we have the greatest story ever told. We know its outcome. The reason we, we spend to other magical things about Christmas time and jolly old fat men wearing red suits is because we haven't fully understood the implications of the story we actually have because we don't understand how to read stories. The son of great peace would be a king also of great righteousness. Now, I'm, I'm in closing now, but I won't spend much time here because this is the theme of next week's sermon. Um, but Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, look at it. It says, Of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, three quick things to note. Number one, the son will be a king. There's no, uh, no, there's no missing this. right? He, he says that he sits on the throne of David. One of the biggest themes in the prophetic text of the Old Testament is the idea that God would raise up someone from the line of David. In other words, he would raise up a king. Listen to these words from Jeremiah. Chapter 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like what Isaiah 9 verse 7 is saying? Isaiah, again in chapter 11, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Right? He's saying that there's going to come someone from the line of David to be king. This is the express uh, expectation that a future king associated with the lineage of David would arise to rule with righteousness justice, 
and wisdom. And listen, this is why, this, this is why when Matthew put pen to paper and begins to write the gospel according to Matthew, these are his first words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He understood the whole Old Testament has been looking for this guy to show up who would come from the line of David. He would be the one the scriptures had prophesied about. He would be a king. Number two, that, that peace would never end. Notice in verse seven, uh, he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It means that for, for us as Christians today, like, like peace will never end. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about like the, the inception of that story begins with uh, a baby in a manger? Have you connected Romans chapter 8, verse 35, which says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? This peace, this love of Christ is ours to have because he has come. Because his peace will never end. So the son will be a king, this peace will never end, and finally, number three, his rule will be righteous. It will be righteous. He says in the middle of verse seven there, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You and I have only glimpses of what this type of rulership looks like. We've seen sometimes politicians are able to do some good, amen? But most of the time they do evil. But King Jesus' rule is not like the modern day politicians. He will not be marked by any injustice, but rather Jesus' rule will be marked by true justice, rightly understood and rightly defined. It will be a rule marked by true righteousness. Think of all the good stories you have read. Do not most of them end with peace in the land, with the war being over, the good guy killing the bad guy, the good guy getting the girl, the dragon being slayed. Why are we so obsessed with these kinds of stories? It's because it's the story of the universe. It's the story of creation. Friends, it's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Isaiah chapter 9. It's the story of Christmas. So in conclusion, listen, we don't need to embellish this story. Friends, we don't need to embellish the story. We don't need to conjure up some sort of magical interpretation to see the wonder in children's eyes. Listen, we just need to tell them the old story. And in order to do that, we also need to fall in love with that story ourselves. We need to see our own lives as being part of that story. Let me close with this illustration. We were on our way home um, yesterday from, from, uh, from Southern Ohio. And I, you know, I had some music. Kids were kind of half in, half out. Mom was kind of half in, half out. Kids screaming. It's a great time. Uh, praise the Lord. But anyway, I had this song on uh, by Brian Suave, and it's called A Neptune Roaring. The, the theme of the song is to call his young sons into this kind of story where we raise up men to, to go kill Goliath, we raise up men to go slay dragons. This is, this is what the song says. It says, come on, boys, don't you know? There's dragons out there, dragons out there. Come on, boys, don't be slow. Cut down Leviathan, go get the girl. And then the bridge of the song says this. Don't give any heed to cowardly tongues. There's glory out there, out there to be won. Look to the king, he's thrown down Goliath and cut off his head. Take courage now, son. Well, at that point, my daughter must have been listening because uh, she put two and two together and she said, wait a minute, Goliath had his head cut off? I took the moment, I paused for about a split second. I said, absolutely he did. She said, I must have not heard that part of the story, Dad. I said, isn't it glorious? 
all of God's enemies will face similar conclusions. To which my daughter then took that, uh, t- that conclusion and said, I guess when people do bad, we should just cut off their heads, Dad. To which I had to begin to understand, uh, explain some grace, understand some things, but, but fundamentally, fundamentally, she's absolutely right. Absolutely right. The sword is not given to the church, not given to individuals to go cut off people's heads, but who's, who has that authority? Is it not the government? Is it not the, the, the role of the government to actually uh, encourage the good and dissuade the bad? The whole point of the song, the whole point uh, of the scriptures is to actually get us to see life through these kinds of lens, to get us to see that there is good, there is evil, and we all have a role to play in it. Come on, boys, don't you know there's dragons out there, dragons out there. Come on, boys, don't be slow. Cut down Leviathan. Go get the girl. Like, this is the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. I said last week that the story of Ruth is a love story, but it's also the Christmas story. This is the story of God rescuing sinners, of God stepping into the muck and the mire and hoisting us up out of there. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of a Savior who would lay down his life for you and I, though we had nothing in ourselves worth saving. He saved us anyway. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Christmas. Listen, it's the only story we need. We just have to understand that we've been told a lie, that we can understand the world through mere facts uh, and understanding, just stacking up uh, information without actually putting the bits and the pieces together to understand what in the world God's doing in his world. We need to reclaim we need to reclaim that from, the, from society and actually read the scriptures that way. Actually read the scriptures that way. Yeah, it, David cut off Goliath's head. And, you know, my, my, as we kept sitting there talking about it, Julie said, he must have had a big saw because Goliath had a big neck. I said, well, honey, that's the beauty of the story as well. You see, he, David didn't use a saw. David didn't have a sword either. I said, do you know what he used to cut off Goliath's head? She said, what? I said, He's Goliath's own sword against him. Now, track with me here. The story of mankind is that you and I were plunged into darkness in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's order, right? We all sit outside of Christ in great darkness. David shows up, slays Goliath, cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. But what does Jesus do? Does Jesus come into the world and begin to uh, slay giants? Does he begin to slay uh, uh, men and women? How does, how, what's the tool that Jesus used to overthrow Satan? Was it not the devil's own weapon against him? You see, Jesus didn't win by raising up armies and, and conquering the gates of hell. He, he, he won the victory using death, which was, by the way, Satan's greatest tool in his tool belt, Jesus recaptured that and used it for the undoing of Satan. Man, that's, that's a story. That's a story. That's the story we all need to, to lean into, to understand more, to love more and more. Jesus won the battle by laying down his life for his, uh, for his friends. Right, He laid down his life for those he would call to himself. Therefore, that's our battle too. That's our battle too. He's called us into that story to raise up young men, to raise up young women, to, to live our lives in such a way that we see everything, not through mere facts and uh, information gathering, but through the story of the universe, through the story of what God is doing in our day.
Friends, this is why Christmas is the greatest story of all time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, as we're just reminded this morning, Lord, that, that we get to be on this side of the cross, we get to be on this side of the manger, uh, Lord, that we get to live our entire lives, not in the darkness, but in the light. And so, Father, Lord, wherever we're drawn still to darkness, wherever we're drawn uh, to, to uh, uh, think that, that we can explain everything around us through mere scientific and natural terms and not through understanding how you actually wire the world to work, Lord, I pray you would cause us to repent. Let us see the beauty that this is something that happened like in the days of Midian. Father, Lord, let us see that this is something that only you could do. Let us be, um, let us be undone by that. Let us be uh, uh, fully sold out to that. Let us be uh, fully committed to the idea of Christmas as, as a good gift given to us, as the best story. Let us proclaim that story. Let us go tell that story everywhere we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.